This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> These are the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 has been, I suppose, the bedrock of which Europe, and particularly our British justice jurisprudence system, has been built upon for generations. And whenever society or a nation whenever it continually, deliberately breaks those laws, then they will fall and they will fail. God put these laws to be a blessing, to be a help. And God gave more commands than just these ten, but these ten epitomize all of the rest. They all could be summed up into two. The first four, which is towards God, the last six, which is towards man. So the first four are vertical, the last six are horizontal. The first four is our dealings with God, the last six is our dealings with men. And we know that in Matthew chapter 22, that the Lord himself, uh, he reduced these 10 into 2. And in Matthew 22, in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so that sums up the first four, which are Godward, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. But then the last six, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so if we love our neighbor as ourself, then we're not going to steal it from them. We're not going to kill them. We're not going to covet what they've got. We're not going to run after somebody else's wife because we will love them as ourselves. I really just want to focus tonight on the first commandment of the 10 in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That immediately implies, of course, (laughs) that men will have other gods before God. That they will have a God of their own making. That they will invent gods and worship false gods. So God makes it clear right from the very beginning, you shall have no other gods before me. So here God is declaring his ultimate right and claim to our lives. How can God do that? How can he say this? What right has he got? What authority does he have to say that you shall have no other gods other than him, the one and only God? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, because of his creative right. Because of his creative right. God made man in his own image. He created us. He made us, and because he made us, he has got a claim upon us. In Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? You made him just a little lower than the angels. So God is claiming a right to us because he is our creator. In Revelation chapter 4, and just the one verse, let me read it to you, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 and Revelation 4, many other scriptures, God lays claim to us because he created us. That's his creative right. But more than that, because of his redemptive right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so God has a redemptive right to claim us. Peter says, We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the vain traditions of our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. So all of that is claiming a redemptive right. Isaiah 53 is the same. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. And so he can claim us 
and demand that we have no other gods before him because of his creative right, because of his redemptive right, and thirdly, because of his providential right. God created us for this earth, and he created earth for us. In the providence of God, God has given us this earth. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place that we live. Psalm 145, 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. There is nowhere in the universe like this place that we live upon. And I'm amazed at the intricacies, the, the accuracies, the exactness of all of God's creation, all working in harmony. And God has placed us right upon this planet in the midst of it. Astronomers call it the Goldilocks planet because it's not too hot and it's not too cold. If you ever saw an image of the Milky Way galaxies where our little Earth is in, you'd notice that it's three quarters of the way out from the center from what they call the galactic bulge. Because if we had been close to the center, there'd been too much heat and too much light. We'd have been fried. If we had been right to the very edge of our galaxy, right at the very tip of the spiral wing, you'd look up at night, and apart from the moon, you wouldn't see anything else. Just an empty blackness. So God strategically placed us right exactly where the earth needed to be for our betterment so that we could live upon this little planet that we call Earth. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. In Psalm 19, it tells us again that God made the stars. And he made the sun. And all of this was for our benefit. All of it was for light in the day and light in the night. And thank God that we have this great sun for light in the day. And you know, our sun, which is just a star, it's part of the, what they call the main sequence stars. And it's just the optimum size and mass to be that exact distance from Earth, 93 million miles. If it's 10% closer, if we were 10% closer, we would be fried. If we were 20% further away, we would be an ice block. But we're exactly where God placed us and exactly where we need it to be. It's the optimum size. It's a yellow sun. Now, you know me with colors. I don't need to go into that. But 
stars usually are four colors, the red and the yellow and the white and the blue. And the red are dying stars, and they're mainly huge stars, but they're cooling stars. The yellow star, which is our star, is just the right temperature and the right distance from Earth to sustain us. The white stars are much, much hotter, and the blue stars are the hottest of all. Aren't you glad God didn't put us beside a blue star? <laughs> we never would have survived. Or we, we're not near any superstars. If we had to be near Betelgeuse, which is a superstar, it would have swallowed us up. But we're just right exactly where God needs us to be. As you know, there's lots of talk today about finding other planets and other systems. And if you could find another planet like Earth with a, with a star like Earth star, and maybe that could form life. And you know the evolutionist theory and all the rest of it. But the reality is, to try to get to the nearest star, the nearest star is Alpha Proxima and Alpha Centauri. It's a, in fact, it's a triple star uh, situation. And to get to there, in 1962, they sent a little craft up Mariner 2. And it's still up there since 1962. And it's traveling at 38,000 miles an hour. And for it, at that incredible speed, it's the fastest thing that's man-made in space and has been for many years. But for that to get to the nearest star at that speed would take 76,000 years. So as far as man going to another star system, it's just pie in the sky, really, if you excuse the pun. The stars, it says, are to give us light at night. On average, in the northern hemisphere, if we look up, on average we could see about 3,000 stars. In the southern hemisphere, the same, about 3,000 stars. And they're all strategically placed uh, where we can see those beautiful designs you know, the Cassiopeia and Pegasus and Orion, the Hunter, and all of those, which are lovely to look at. And the Bible says they're for signs and they're for seasons. And there's times. People used them for centuries for navigational purposes. And if they're stuck, they still can do that. The moon is much more important than you think. The old moon Whenever you look up at it, it doesn't look very much, but we couldn't exist without it, actually. The gravitational pull of the moon, which is what gives us our tides, and it's just the right distance away, and it's just the right size. If it was much, much bigger, the gravitational pull would cause tsunamis. You wouldn't get the gentle tides coming. It would be tsunamis every day. It would just rack the planet. And if it was much, much further away, you'd hardly get much gravitational pull, and then the seas would become stagnant because that's the thing that keeps the seas fresh. The tidal waves. It's like a big washing machine that keeps the nutrients being stirred up for the fish to eat, for things to live. Its light is just perfect for us. You know, when the sun hits the moon, when its light reflects of it, it contains 73, it retains 93% of the sunlight. That's why there's so much dust, because it breaks up the rocks. Only 7% of that sunlight is reflected, and it's perfect 
for us at night. The moon's lovely, isn't it, when you go out and have a lovely big moon. And even at its brightest, it's still just 7%, which is just absolutely perfect for us. Imagine if it was Venus, it would be 76% of light. You would need to wear your sunglasses at night, wouldn't you, in bed to try to get some kind of a sleep. The Earth is the perfect size for us, for gravity. There's enough gravity for us to be able to walk and to run and to live and to enjoy. If it was bigger, much bigger, there'd be too much gravity. It would crush your very bones. The weight of it pressing you. And if it was much, much smaller and there was less gravity, your bones wouldn't grow. You know those astronauts that's up there right whizzing around our Earth right now as I speak? They're only up there for six months. And as soon as they go up there, their bone density weakens. In fact, whenever they come back, it takes months before their bone density, density starts to get up again. That's why they have to exercise hours every day. If they didn't, their bones would just break because of that lack of gravity. So the earth is just perfect for us. You know, the earth is one of the very few planets that we know of that has a, an orbit around the sun that is almost, almost circular. Because most planets, it's elliptical. It's like a big oval shape. Because that's why they're worried about going to Mars today. Because sometimes Mars is closer to the Earth in its journey around the sun. Other times it's far, far away from Earth. So they have to hop close to it when it's near Earth and then go on that big, long journey. It takes two years for them if they went out on that. It would take two years before they get back again to be close enough. But Earth is just absolutely perfect. And in that journey around the sun, 365 days... <laughs> 66,000 miles an hour, one and a half million miles it moves every day. And it's spinning at a thousand miles an hour. That's what gives us our day and our night, and we don't even realize it. Sure we don't. Can you imagine you've traveled one and a half million miles since this time yesterday? We didn't even notice that. But that's the way that God has made it. And of course, it's 23 and a half degree tilt because of the way the sun shines in that, that gives us our seasons. That gives us our seasons. And so as it journeys around the sun, it's so accurate that it only loses one hundredth of a second every 100 years. That's how accurate it is. And God has made it so. And he has placed it for us to live. Our average temperature, average, is 15 degrees, just exactly right for human beings to exist. 15 degrees on average. Yes, it's hotter at the equator. Yes, it's colder at the poles. But on average, it's 15 degrees, which is just right, which is why it's the Goldilocks planet. Mars is 23 below. That's cold, isn't it? Venus is 480 above. Venus is so hot, it melts rocks. <laughs> you wouldn't want to go there on your holidays. Sure you wouldn't. What factor do you think could handle that? I don't think any factor could handle it. And so on and on you can go. Can't live in the gas giants. So in our solar system, there's only one place. And as far as we know, there's only one place in our whole galaxy. 
that's perfectly suited for us and that's earth. That's the providence of God. That's God made for us to live on. Yes, there's a great cry to find other planets. That's the, that's the holy grail of astronomy, to find a livable planet. Well, they've been searching for a long time and they haven't found it. And they're not going to find it because this is it. It's right under their very nose. So thank God for his providence, amen? And then God, because of all of that, God declares that there's no other God can meet our greatest and our deepest need. There is no other God. Who are you? Why are you? Where are you? Those are the nagging, nagging questions that every, every human being thinks about at one time or other. We think, why am I here? Who am I? Where am I in life? Biology describes life as the metabolic activity of protoplasm. And some wag says, and some days it even feels worse than that. <laughs> Whenever God spoke to Adam, the first recorded words that God spoke to Adam is, Adam, where are you? It was not a geographical question. It was a spiritual question. Where are you? God knew exactly where he was geographically in the garden. Where are you spiritually? Did somebody tell you about that forbidden fruit? Did you eat of it? Were you not warned not to do that? Did I not tell you you would die if you disobeyed and ate that? So where are you spiritually? And that's the question that God asks every man. Where are you before me spiritually? And it's a question that we need to answer, isn't it? It's a question that every man needs to answer. Who are you? Who are you? That's the big question. And God gives us that answer. We're made in his image. He made us. He created us. He loves us. He wants us. And he made us for his good pleasure. But men today are looking for these answers. Who they are, where they are, why they are. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a hunger in men's hearts. There's a, a question that continually arises, and people are trying to find the answer. You know, I, I read a way back that Johnny Wilkinson, the great rugby player, at that time, the arguably the best player in the world, certainly the best player in Britain. And he, he sought after Buddhism because he wanted enlightened. He really wanted to know, who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose to my life? And Madonna, she chasing Kabbalah, Tom Cruise, Scientology, and on and on you could go. 
And they're all asking the same question in a different way. Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing here? What's the purpose of my life? And they're not going to find it in Buddhism, in yoga, in asceticism. They're not going to find it in the candles and in the chants and the bells. They're not going to find it in that. You're only going to find the answer in Christ. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary, says, Religions are man's search for God, but the gospel is God's search for man. And if a man finds Christ of the gospels, then he'll find the reason for his very existence. You know, that's the wonderful thing when you get saved. You realize your purpose you realize this is why I was created. This is why God made me and put me here. Because I'm his child. A professor of comparative religions, he was talking to a young student who'd found Christ, and he says, what teachings of Christ made you become a Christian? He said, sir, it wasn't his teachings, it was him. It was him. And there's a truth in that. Now, of course, his teachings are very, very important for us. But it's him first. Then his teachings come with that. You see, the problem with religions and with cults is the teachings is the big thing. And what I mean by that? Well, what happens is they go with the teachings of this prophet or this guru or this teacher. But then when that teaching, when it becomes irrelevant in modern society or it becomes controversial and they want to ditch the teaching, then they ditch that and they ditch their prophet, they ditch their guru and they get another one with a new teaching because the teaching attracts them. But with Christ, Christ comes and we're attracted to him. And then we receive and accept and live his teachings. I don't know if you ever spoke to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, but I remember two Mormons came to my door one night and they were very nice and very pleasant. And I said to them, I says, uh, can we talk about Joseph Smith, please? Can we talk about Brigham Young? And he says, no, 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 we don't really want to talk about that. And the reason why I don't want to talk about that is because much of their teachings has been so discredited. But they say, but, you know, we have new prophets today. We have new prophets today. We have other leaders today. I said, no, no, I'm interested in the original ones, the ones that started all out. I'd like to talk about that. But, but no, no, they're gone, they're dead. But we have new ones now. You see, once the teaching becomes discredited or controversial and they drop that, then they get a new teacher with new teachings. The Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, I would like to talk about Charles Taze Russell and Judge Rutherford. I would like to talk about the early leaders the ones who started it. Well, no, we don't really want to talk about that. And they don't want to talk about it because they made so many claims about Christ coming and about the end of the world that was totally nonsense again and again and again. 
So the Lord will want to talk, but we've got new prophets today, and we have new revelation, we have new insights today. So we can say, well, we've got the same Jesus, we've got the same teachings for 2,000 years, and we don't need to change. We love the Lord Jesus Christ, and we love his teachings, and we don't see any need to change. Jesus says, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said in five, John 5, 23, if they do not honor me, if you do not honor me, you do not honor the Father. <clears throat> J.A. Packer, theologian, he says about the, the creed. When we say that we believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, he says, when we say that, then almost all Eastern religions, that's them gone out of the picture. Because they don't believe that. The Hindus at one point believed it was elephants was holding up the earth. Seriously. What he said, when we say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then we part company with Judaism and Islam and we stand alone. Christianity stands alone. It's unique because Christ is unique and his sacrifice was unique. And thirdly, because Christ, because God said, you will have no other gods before me. I said at the beginning, that implies that men will have other gods. But he says, none before me. In other words, we will believe in a God of some description. If it's not the one and only God, then we will have a God. And it could be a philosophy, it could be another religion, it could be science, it could be sport, it could be whatever we want it to be. And we will worship that, not in the sense that we come to a church building the way we do, but we will worship that. Football in Great Britain, the great cathedrals of our stadiums is filled on Sundays with tens of thousands of people who worship the beautiful game. I saw one on TV it was a few years ago, I forget who it was, some manager retired of some club and there was grown men crying. <laughs> grown men crying. Something's got to be wrong with that. That's how much sport has taken over their lives. I remember one time looking at the Premier League to see how much it would cost the average supporter if they were to get their season ticket, if they were to go to the away games, which would be all over Europe, if they buy all the kits that comes out every year. It was thousands, thousands every year. And I thought, most Christians doesn't give thousands to the kingdom of God every year. <laughs> Sometimes they come along and put 10p in the offering plate. God help us. Huh? 
anything can become a God if it starts to control our lives and takes up too much of our energies and our times and our finances. So we need to watch. So God wants to direct our worship the right way to him. And if our worship is directed at him, then we can enjoy our sports and we can enjoy lots of things and we can enjoy our careers and enjoy this and enjoy that. But if our worship is directed at him, we get everything in balance. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, the best definition of worship I have ever known. He says, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. In other words, worship is all that we are responding to all that he is. It's not a great definition, isn't it? And that's what God wants. You shall have no other gods before me. Hmm. G.W. Robinson, that old 19th century hymn writer, he says, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around a deeper green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow, flowers with richer beauty shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. <laughs> Isn't it the truth when you get saved? Everything looks better. Even nature itself is amazing. Even nature itself, when you, when you honor God and say, that's the creation of Almighty God, it becomes much more important in our eyes. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what he put first, wasn't it? The very first thing you get right first. No other gods before me. And then he goes down the other nine. But that's what he put first. So many gods today. So many people chasing so many different things. So many philosophies. So much false teaching. So many religions. We need to remember the one true and living God, and worship him and him alone. Thank God that he has given us this life in Christ. Thank God he's changed us. Thank God he's given us a purpose. Thank God we know why we're born and why we're here and what we're supposed to be in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our blinded eyes were opened. And for the first time, we saw a reason, the real reason for our lives. And we thank you that we received you and embraced you. Now, Lord, we have purpose in life. We have a destination. We're heading in the right direction. And so we give you thanks for these things. We bless you that you are the only true and living God. We thank you, Lord, that our life is hid with Christ in God. We bless you, Lord, that our hand is in your hand today. We thank you, Lord, that we love you and serve you and walk with you 
then, Lord, you shower us with many, many blessings. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love, which is abundant in our lives. Every day, every moment of every day, Lord, your thoughts towards us are good, not for evil, to give us a hope and a future. So we bless you today, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.